open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Woods. A full-time practice, 30-plus patients, numerous inventions, prolific research activities, a prominent teaching role, and a productive startup. It would be an understatement to call Dr. Malik Kahook an active contributor to the field of ophthalmology. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, we'll hear from Malik on the time it takes to balance these commitments, why he sees himself as a so-called matchmaker, and how he goes about turning an idea into a reality. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Today on Ophthalmology Off the Grid, I have uh, really the distinct honor and privilege to interview a friend of mine um, and a mentor, uh, both in one, and this is Malik Hook. And Malik, if you don't know, is uh, quite the inventor. He's got over 30 patents filed. At the same time of being an entrepreneur and an inventor, he is clinically very active. He's actually the uh, Director of Clinical and Translational Research at the University of Colorado. He's a professor of ophthalmology in the Slater Family Endowed Chair, and also, in his spare time, the Director of the Glaucoma Service and Fellowship. Um, and beyond all that, um, helps run a basically kind of an incubator and startup, and has actually gotten a couple products to market. So. Uh, Malik, I don't know where you find the time, and I'm, I really have no idea how you've got time to talk to me today, but I'm really happy to uh, have the opportunity to interview you and uh, learn from you. So um, thanks for coming on the show. Gary, thank you very much. And you know, I'm just thinking as you're doing the introduction that I could ask you the same question about how you could do everything that you're doing, and including this podcast, which has been really a, a treat to listen to. I've been passing around some of the links and the most recent episode on outreach and mission work was was fantastic. So it's a it's a real treat for me to be on with you today. Well, I appreciate that, Malik. And it's 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 sort of easy to say, oh well, you know, I just kind of fit it in here and there. But you know, time is really one of those resources that everyone gets the exact same quantity and it's what you do with it and how you schedule your your day. And you know, actually just before we were we started uh, the interview, we were kind of talking about time. And so that may be an area we should just jump right into. Um, you know, right. previous and you know, previous to about a year ago, I was going five days a week clinically, doing surgery, seeing patients, and then trying to um, do my extra activities with Omega and other consulting activities, really after hours and on the weekends. And I found myself uh, kind of being stretched too thin. So I've I've actually have some dedicated time now to work on other projects. And it sounds like you may have a similar situation. So walk us through the decision in your in your career when you said, you know what, I got it. I have to back off a little bit clinically to you know engage more um, in this other area. Yeah, this is a, a huge topic for people who have a foot in the clinic and also trying to do some things on on the side with inventions, startups, and you know, similar to the work you're doing with a podcast as well. How do you find the time? And the time commitment is enormous for every single thing that we do, whether it's patient care in the clinic or surgery or any of the invention work or the research done in the laboratory. I have a full-time practice, as you said, at the University of Colorado. I have a glaucoma fellow um, every year. And I also have administrative duties that go along with the vice chair position for, for translational research. And it really wasn't until recently that I started thinking about balancing things a little bit more and cutting back. I'll just give you an idea of, of how a day usually works for me. Um, I typically wake up at four in the morning. 
I do work from four to seven uh, at home on the research work. I actually have a wet lab in my basement uh, that we set up for convenience so that I could get some work done. Not surprising. That's a mad scientist laboratory. I'm <laughs> fully convinced, but go on. That's right. Yeah, there's a FACO machine that goes in and out of there for some of the work that we do as well. Uh, I then go to clinic. Usually my clinic runs from 730 until 12. And I also am married to an academic physician. My wife is in family medicine. And we have a three and a half year old son. So you can imagine that there's a lot of juggling that goes on. Uh, we're tag teaming care as well. So we usually high five in the garage when she goes to her clinic. Uh, and then um, I usually end up going back into the office and into the laboratory for evenings. And I work until midnight almost every day before going to bed and doing it all over again. And you get to a point where you start looking at um, how to get time efficient. And I think that's something that a lot of uh, people in our circles are, are very good at. Uh, and I started looking at my schedule and balancing things a little bit better. It, recently, I went to a 50-50 split where I'm doing clinic and surgery half the time and then focusing on research and some of the company work that I'm doing uh, the other 50% of the time. And that has worked out really well. Um, I can tell you, just like you, I milk every minute out of the day. So I'm rarely just sitting down and, and staring at the TV or, or doing uh, you know, some of the work that uh, might be seen as uh, taking time off. I usually have a phone in my hand, uh, just like I'm sure you do. And I try and fill every minute with some activity uh, that will, uh, at the end of the day, make me look back and say, okay, I, I got done what I wanted to get done. And um, that's the challenge every day. It is, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, it's the, it's the old Pink Floyd analogy of, um, all in all, it's another brick in the wall, you know, and, and as whatever, whatever career we build, whatever thing we do, um, I really hate idle time. I hate doing things where I'm mistaking activity for productivity. And so I really try to look at impact and making sure that the activities I you know, fill my day with are impactful. And whether that's business impact or whether that's medicine impact or whether it's personal impact, meaning you know, trying to spend time with my family and, and friends and being a, a good friend to people who, who need that from time to time. You know, I, I try to judge my my uh, day in sort of sort of an impact score, and so it sounds like you uh, you are doing the very same thing. Yeah, the other the other thing that comes to mind just as you were talking, I was thinking about you know, the truth is we're surrounded by so many people, and it becomes extremely important, extremely clear uh, very quickly that uh, whether it's me, you, or any of uh, um, the clinicians who are working in, in um, different inventions and trying to get different products to market, you have to surround yourself with people who can help you fulfill um, that obligation to the technology, but also people to learn from. So you can see people who've done it before and how they manage their time. And I, I've certainly been the uh, uh, beneficiary of some of that advice and, and that ecosystem around translational research. Well, that, that actually brings up a, a next point I wanted to kind of get into, and that's you know, we are we are physicians trying to solve our own problems. You know, as as a physician inventor or a physician entrepreneur, we kind of fall into the user innovator category when when you kind of look at innovation as it, from a top down approach. So, you know, you have companies out there who employ engineers and employ people to think about new inventions that they can make, and then you have physicians that are out there thinking about problems that they want to solve. And sometimes those two groups don't interface or don't connect well because their priorities may be different or what you want to achieve may not be um, something that would impact someone else's quarterly earnings. So sometimes right. there, we don't see eye to eye with industry. 
um, all the time. And, and I think our industry may be a little bit of an aberration where I do feel like a lot of the companies really do ask and do listen. So I, I, I don't want this to sound like an indictment at all. But just in the, in the world of innovation, user innovators typically come up with some of the best ideas because they're deeply connected to the problem they're trying to solve. But typically they fall short in connecting that idea or that solution to the resources necessary to take it all the way through you know, development and to market. And you're talking about connecting yourself or surrounding yourself by people who are able to um, maybe fill those gaps. So walk me through what it looks like in, in your world. How have you been able to find the right partners to surround yourself with to take an idea and not just let it die in the back of a napkin, actually moving through a stepwise process and all the way to market? So I'm very curious to know what that looks like in your life. Yeah, I'll just I'll give you an idea of, um, you know, I use the word ecosystem, and I think um, that truly is... Uh, an important thing when it comes to making sure that your ideas can grow and that they don't die after after the initial light bulb goes off. And I, I've been very lucky uh, to be in the right place, I think, at the right time. Uh, nothing will happen without passion. I, I know you would second that, that the passion for the idea is really what starts thing. And, and the the concept of never giving up when you really believe in something. And I can give you countless examples of people in our field who went through years, decades even, of development to get a product to market, whether it's you know Dr. Ahmed from the Ahmed Valve, Dr. Barvelt from the Barvelt Valve, and then some of the companies that are in the news lately, like Transcend, Glaucos, Aquasis, Ivantis. And these are companies that have been around for a considerable amount of time before even uh, getting any attention. So from my standpoint, I, I feel lucky to be in an environment that can uh, really take care of me and, and foster that passion. Um, I have support from my academic center, and I think that might be something that's a little bit unique uh, with my circumstance compared to yours. I'm, I'm in an academic center. Um, I have an endowed chair that really covers um, a chunk of my time to give me the freedom uh, to um, take a step away from clinic without feeling that burden of needing to see another 30 patients or 40 patients in a half day. I have a very supportive chair, dean, and chancellor. They understand the innovation process, the mandate to enhance patient care, and that's something that I, I, I can feel when I talk to them, that that support is there. And I also have been able to get great contacts and uh, mentors for my training, uh, training with Joel Schumann, who was one of the original inventors of OCT, and my chairman, who's also very inventive, who has um, made several introductions um, I think I'm a good project leader. I have the skills to, to keep pushing things forward. And so when I meet uh, people that I think would be interested in some of the ideas, um, I'm always taking a list. I don't know if you're a list taker, but I'm a list taker. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so if, you, if you pick up my iPhone and you look at the notes section, I have lists that go over many things. And one of those is, is if I meet somebody, if it's a student or if it's a resident or a fellow or somebody more senior than me, I keep a list and I go back to it often. Um, and the other thing I think that I've also been lucky uh, with is, is getting introduced to certain venture capital firms. Um, NEA has been instrumental in some of the stuff that I've done recently that is a venture um, group that uh, initially funded Clarvista Medical. And uh, Clarvista Medical then brought in great leadership. Paul McLean is the CEO from Boston Scientific, Glenn Sussman, head of R&D from Alcon. So I have all of these resources around me, people that I'm learning from who take the time to teach me, 
And I make the effort uh, to, as much as possible, foster those relationships. I'm constantly texting, emailing, calling, meeting with people at meetings. And I make an effort to uh, connect with people and to, as much as possible, figure out not only how they can help me, but how I can help them. And I think we're, we're lucky to be in an environment with translational research where that is common in our field, that people are helping people. And I, you probably feel the same about that. Yeah, you know, that, that is interesting. Um, I think as physicians, we, you know, probably all share a common bond of wanting to help people. Um, but then you mentioned something you said, rather than spending another half day in clinic, um, seeing 30 additional patients, you, your time needs to be spent, at least a portion of it, actually thinking about driving the field forward. And for me, that's kind of the hook. You know, that's the, that's the thing I think about, you know, in many ways, as physicians doing surgery or seeing patients, we're skilled laborers. You know, we don't ever think of ourselves that way. We kind of think of that, you know, as physicians, somehow we're, we are magically different. But when you break That's it right. down, we, um, are, we have a skill and we apply that skill one patient at a time to impact that patient's life. And that's fantastic. And I love that. And I hope that's always a part of my life. But the thing I love is I love thinking bigger. I, th- I love thinking about driving change. And what, what, are, what problems are here today that when, when I look back over my career, I can say maybe I had a, a hand in moving our profession forward. It, because it's such, we have such a great profession in ophthalmology, and this is nothing against any other specialty or other you know, field, but you know, ophthalmology is just, I mean, it's like the crown jewel um, where we really get to help people protect and enhance their most favorite sight, or their most favorite sense, I should say. Um, and you said also, you've said you focus more on contribution than you do trying to get other people to fall in line or to, to give you something. And I just think that is the, the ultimate you know, quality of a leader. And you know, if you are a leader that's always just trying to um, take from people, um, you know, it just doesn't end up working out as well. But if you're someone who's always trying to add value to a situation and assembling the right people that you can give to, and then what you give them multiplies exponentially because you're, you're trying to find their talents and the things that they can do in a project to make, um, make contributions and extend themselves. And, you know, that's really team building. And that's how I find a lot of fulfillment in this is seeing people contribute beyond maybe, you know, what I even thought they could giving little, little bits of information or little pearls to people and letting them run with it. Um, so I, I totally agree. I think it's a, a lot more about giving, uh, than getting. Um, so I, I totally agree with, with, with what you're saying. So you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I think one of the uh, most important things that I do in any given day is um, I act as a matchmaker for a lot of things. I remember reading uh, Malcolm Gladwell, The Tipping Point, about matchmaking and how important that can be for uh, certain ideas to grow. And through the past 10 years of practice, since I've been, uh, since I, I've been in Colorado after fellowship, uh, you get these um, Rolodexes, these lists of people who do specific things And we're in an environment because we are practicing in clinic and in surgery and also interfacing with technology innovators where we can start mixing and matching with people and making these introductions that end up growing. And I feel like it always comes back uh, to benefit some of the stuff that I'm doing in some way. You might not see it today, uh, but the fact that we have a foot in both places, I think, gives us a, a very unique opportunity to bring people together. It's another thing that we can all do, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So um, I, I think one one thing that I'd love to get or pick your brain on a little bit 
it really surrounds the um, the physician entrepreneur that may be out there and has an idea today or comes up with an idea sometime you know in, in the near future. What would you? What kind of advice would you give someone? Um, and I, I kind of have my own opinions, um, and so I'll, I'll be willing and happy to kind of uh, share with you my opinions on that. Um, yeah. What pearls would you give to a physician that feels like they've solved a really important problem, and and they just don't know what to do with it? They don't know if they should file a patent or call up Alcon or call up you know another you know major player in the space. There's always this tension of of protecting your idea, but also the tension of getting enough supporters and um, cheerleaders around it to make it happen. What does your experience tell you uh, is is maybe the right first step if you have a, a good idea uh, to help prevent it from just dying on the vine? Yeah, so this is a great question, and uh, it's something that we all think about. Um, we get asked these questions. It's not uh, unusual for me to get a phone call or a text or an email from somebody just saying, hey, I have this idea. What do you think the next steps might be? And it's really difficult for me not to talk a mile a minute here and just share all of my experiences. I've tried to boil things down to a, a basic list. And at the top of that list is the time commitment. Everybody who comes up with an idea, whether you're in surgery or in the clinic and you think, you know what, I think I have something here the first thing you should think about is the time commitment because I don't think we, we do that enough in, in some of our daily practices. And like we were talking about earlier, from conception to market, it's not unusual for something to take eight to 12 years. So this is a very serious commitment and uh, something that should be the first step that you take. Yeah, after that, you have certain things that you can think about in sequence uh, that will make a lot of sense. The first thing is, is this truly an unmet need? The best way to do that, you know, rather than calling a major company or an industry member as helpful as they can be, I think the most important thing is to call somebody like me and you, colleagues, uh, people that you interact with, um, talking to even patients and talking about, hey, if you had something like this and just be very basic about it, that gives you an idea of is this an, a true unmet need or is it just a cool idea that maybe isn't a product or a company? Yeah, I, I, I think that is a, such a key that you hit on um, is, is finding a solution to an unmet need that's real. Um, right. You know, I'm studying some of this right now, design thinking and innovation and taking a course online, which has been really fun. And um, one of the very first um, almost cornerstones of innovation is not that light bulb moment. Most people think about innovation as having an idea or having that light bulb go off in your mind. That's actually two or three steps beyond where innovation starts. You know, innovation starts by defining an unmet need or, or seeing something that no one else sees as a problem and finding a solution to it. And I think you're exactly right. You can talk to people about the problem without revealing the solution to gauge your appropriate judgment about whether this unmet need is is maybe a minor headache in someone's life or if this is a migraine. You know, if you have the solution, you really want to know how big of a deal it is. So I, I totally agree with you about finding unmet needs. Um, if, you, if you don't have a big unmet need, there's probably not a, a, a huge motivation to go forward because you're right. Whatever solution you develop will likely take about the same amount of time. So you want to make sure at the end of all that, you've met an unmet need that is uh, significant. 
So let's say you have that now and we've figured out that we do have an unmet need and, and the next steps become a little bit more vague, especially to people who are trained par primarily as physicians. You have to start thinking more on the business side. What's the competition? Uh, start looking at different patents and textbooks and internet searches about different things that might be out there that we might not be familiar with. What's the true business opportunity? Is this just a good idea, like I said earlier, or is it something that's financially viable for a company to drive forward or an industry partner to think about uh, from a business standpoint? And then I would start basic builds and proof of concepts. And, and that's a, a probably a whole podcast in itself. How do you find the right contract manufacturer, maybe a university partner? Do you do it with or without a confidentiality agreement? Um, do you start thinking about filing a provisional application? Uh, what does that mean? The whole patent field is completely foreign to most physicians. But I think these are things that we have to start thinking about uh, from, from that point where we have an unmet need. What's the competition? What are the next steps? When do you file the patent? And I'm sure you've gone through this before. And that's something that we can share with others uh, as far as, you know, when do you take that next step? Who do you talk to? And, and how do you go through with it? Right. You know, I, I have the same experience, not infrequently. I'll be at a meeting or um, I'll, I'll get an email. Someone will come up to me, you know, and say, hey, I've got this idea. And um, I've had some conversations with some folks in industry um, who experience the same thing. And they, they call it the, the DWI, doctor with an idea. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's almost like something they dread, which I think is really unfortunate. You know, I guess I'm, I'm biased because I'm a, I guess I'm a DWI. I'm a, I'm a doctor with an idea, but you know, a lot of the things that you said, um, I've, I've been trying to figure out a good framework and the framework I've been, been sort of studying and really resonates with me is something called the real win worth it framework. And so there's basically like three categories. If someone comes up to you and says, Hey, I've got this idea. First of all, as we mentioned, is it a real, it, does it really um, solve a problem that is, that is out there? Does it meet a real unmet need? So that's kind of like that first hurdle um, for, for an idea to, to make sense to pursue. And the second one is when, you know, do you have the skills or the people or the funding um, to actually create a winning solution? Are there technological challenges that um, are going to prevent this idea from going forward because they haven't been invented yet? Or, or is there a competitor out there in the landscape that you know, maybe you can come up with a solution, but they're going to eat your lunch. So maybe, you know, you have to, you have to decide, can you and your team create a winning solution for this? And then the third thing is, is it worth it? At the end of the day, if part one and part two go well, you develop a winning solution. Is there a market that's large enough out there to recoup your investment and make it attractive for people to invest in your idea? And this is sort of the business logic that I think is missing a lot of times. Um, we don't, we're not trained this way. We're, so, we're, we're sort of trained to think, do whatever we can do to save a patient or to save an eye. Or, so a lot of times we don't even think about the worth it category because we're so trained in medicine to do everything necessary. Um, that's right. But that's a framework that I have found to be very, very helpful. And it, it sort of boils down a lot of the things that, that intuitively we know, but it puts them into hurdles that we can kind of walk people through. So that's been a helpful thing I thought I'd share. Yeah, you know, one thing that that I've been thinking about over the past few weeks uh, is something that I think would be very helpful to people like me, you, and, and others who are listening that have ideas 
um, it, it's not just what has made you successful when you're talking to uh, mentors or to people who've done it, but what was your worst failure and and why did that happen? So I'm going to name drop for you, but here's here's something that I think would be a perfect learning tool for uh, for a lot of people. If you put Bill Link, Gene Dewan, Emmett Cunningham, Andy Corley, and let's say Dick Lindstrom all in one room and you say, each one of you <laughs> sequentially tell me what your worst failure was and some of the steps that led to that to that failure and and how you're avoiding them today because obviously we have a lot of great innovators from venture to industry to clinical practice who've done tremendous things and they must have learned from their mistakes so how can we how can we um, take that and really internalize it and I would love to see a piece uh, by you know one of our journals just covering, the biggest failures and how to uh, learn and avoid them in the future. Man, that that's um, that would be like collecting the Mount Rushmore of innovators. <laughs> uh, so no small task there, but those are all such gracious and, and great people. I think they would probably um, be willing to do something like that. So I, I, I definitely will uh, take note of that. I think that'd be a tremendous thing. And, you know, for, for me, you know, I've had plenty of failures. Um, I've had people tell me my whole life um, that, this won't work or you'll, you will not be able to achieve that. And sometimes they were right. You know, that's, that's the reality. Sometimes you do fail. And that's right. But when people talk about their failures, I think that the lesson I've learned is understanding that as sure of an idea as you are, you have to be a skeptic of yourself. So when you fail, you recognize that maybe you had an idea and maybe it wasn't as good as you thought it was going to be. So it builds a healthy dose of skept internal skepticism so that when you have that next idea, and I don't want to say like skepticism to the point that you don't feel like you're capable of doing anything and you don't have a good self-esteem, but a healthy dose of skepticism helps prevent you from drinking your own Kool-Aid. And right. allows you to maybe navigate or see some of the obstacles where before you may just see everything through rose-colored glasses and, and really you know, think about the idea. And then you fast forward the, the 8 to 10 years to the solution and you have this euphoria of I'm going to change the world. And it just doesn't work like that. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's the idea of, of being honest with yourself about the go, no go decision. And that is extremely difficult for uh, every, every inventor. It's not something that's unique to ophthalmology. It's, um, it's something I think that needs to be addressed. And I'll tell you the way that I deal with that. And it's something that I'm constantly uh, learning and going back and bouncing off of, of colleagues. Uh, this is one where my wife is extremely helpful because I can do an elevator pitch where, where I just say, okay, here's the biggest benefit. And um, she's pretty good at saying, hey, I get it. Uh, I understand it. And um, I think that this is a good idea. Um, but also, it's very helpful to get people who might be outside of ophthalmology. My, my wife is in family medicine. Uh, where she might say, you know what, I just don't understand exactly what the major benefit is going to be. And then you go and refine the elevator pitch. If you can nail the elevator pitch where people understand intuitively what the benefit is going to be, I think your go, no-go decision could be um, very well informed by that. Um, at the end of the day, I think you always, uh, and I do mean at the end of every day, um, you should look back and say, okay, did I add value? Where are we with the unmet need? Where are we with the proof of concept? And is this going where I think it's going? 
I'll tell you, if you ever, if you're ever able to come and visit here in Denver, I can take you into my office and open one of my cabinets and show you all of the ideas that never made it beyond proof of concept or never made it into the clinic. And there are many more of those uh, than the, you know, if you compare them to those that have made it into the clinic, like the Harmony lens or, or the dual blade device. Um, so we have to constantly look and be honest with ourselves. And, and I would uh, suggest using the elevator pitch to make yourself honest. Is this something that's sounding good or not? Right. And uh, when, when people don't get it, um, don't just write that off as, well, they, they just, um, you know, they, they're, they're not creative enough or they, they don't get the vision. You know, the, uh, the diffusion of innovation curve, you know, shows that you have to get into that early majority for your, your idea to tip. And um, if, if your elevator pitch isn't going so well, that may be a sign that you're going to have problems bridging that gap from, from your innovators to your, you know, to your early adapters into that early majority. And so, you know, that's a, that you're, you're dead on, you know, you're going to have to convince more than just the, the wild, uh, wild thinkers out there that this is a good idea. Um, and, and just for the record, my wife is also just my best internal uh, review board uh, for any idea. If I can get it past her, you know, I know that it's, there's some legs to it. So she's, she's actually helped me, um, I think, prevented me from going down some rabbit trails before because uh, she's, she's, she's wise beyond her, uh, her years. And, and uh, even though she's not in medicine, she understands people. And I think there's a, there's a big benefit to that. Just imagine if you're doing the elevator pitch to your wife and, and she doesn't get it and you say, you know what, you just don't have the vision to understand, right? <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't work out that way. No. Go back to the drawing board yeah, and get just, a new elevator just, pitch. <laughs> just shred that idea. Just don't worry about it. It's not worth pursuing. Well, Malik, we could probably talk for hours and hours and we have before and we will in the future and I look forward to that. Um, any, any parting thoughts before we wrap this up? You know, one thing I will say is um, for any of the listeners who who have ideas and are really seeking more input, we can share a lot more than what you can in a podcast, as you're aware of. And I think a lot of us who've been through this process are mostly happy and willing to um, share as much as possible. So for anybody out there, if you want to reach out to me, pretty easy to find me on the Internet and um, get in touch. Um, I'm always happy to share some of these uh, learning lessons that I've had and to learn from from those who reach out. Um, so I would I would keep the door open for any of that um, for those of, of the uh, listeners to the podcast. Yeah, and I'll, I'll offer the same exact thing. You know, when you when you have an idea, it's important to talk to people um, who may have been there and can give you a little bit of uh, perspective and and point you in the right direction. So Malik. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. I look forward to many more conversations and I look forward to seeing your continued success. Thanks, man. Thank you, Gary. As evidenced by Malik, the pursuit of invention requires time, energy, honesty, resilience, perseverance, and perhaps most importantly, passion. If it inspires you, it will drive you, as many physician innovators have found. We'll hear from more of these individuals coming soon in part two. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. For more episodes like this, visit itube.net backslash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.